This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are in the midst of a national reckoning following the discovery of a mass grave of 215 Indigenous children on the grounds of a former residential school in Kamloops, B.C. It's a huge shock, but not necessarily a surprise. We have known that between 4,000 and 6,000 children died in residential schools. There is a call to look for other mass graves and to identify the people buried there. There is also a call to get access to church records that have been blocked. Let me give the numbers out. You have something to say about this. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's bring in Kat Krieger, an Indigenous elder, traditional teacher, and knowledge keeper. Santi Smith, founding and managing artistic director of the Kahawi Dance Theatre and Chancellor of McMaster University, as well as Dr. Veldon Coburn, Professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Ottawa. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Nyawe. Uh, thank let's, you for having me. Let's begin with Kat. Hello, Kat. Uh, what's your reaction to this discovery? Well, Scannon, greetings uh, to everyone listening. Um, my reactions to this discovery, well, the, I guess there's some obvious components of that. One was, um, in a sense, shock, but also that shock has been ongoing for a long time uh, through many similar uh, occurrences or recognitions or discoveries. The idea that something like this can did not can, but did exist and was perpetuated by the parties responsible. Um, and just an overall sense of everything around me stopping, you know, from work, play, just day-to-day life, even eating. Um, and it's, you know, to manifest words to describe that is almost impossible. Many of us have experienced loss and grief, but I think on this scale, the fact that it's children. Um, and this is just one location so far, has um, left me uh, still in, in, a, in a fog of how to, just how to, how to comprehend that something like this could happen. Dr. Coburn, uh, when these children were taken to residential schools, was all contact with their families cut off? It was almost entirely restricted. Um, so, especially from the Kamloops Indian Residential School, that was particularly harsh and aggressive, uh, almost to the point of antagonism towards the parents, because there are um, some documents that circulate from, say, the um, Indian agent from the communities that they were sent from, requesting that the children could be given permission to go home for, say, Christmas. And the correspondence between the officials at the school and back to the community via, I guess, what would be the state steward, because uh, even the parents were considered children under the law, they were wards of the state, so that um, it was mediated through state and church officials to such an extent that um, they'd almost have to beg to see their children. And on such occasions as Christmas, they'd have to beg for permission and um, oftentimes that was denied. So you may see some uh, documentation circulating online of certain correspondences, which would have been filed with the Department of Indian Affairs at the time. But um, through parents, again, viewed under the law and treated as uh, children. So they were legal wards themselves without the rights to exercise that over their own children would have uh, denied them the sort of standing and agency required to have any say over the means and ends of their life. It's, um, it's something unfathomable today, it was especially with the advanced structure of individual rights and those that are invested in the parents today. Santi Smith, uh, my understanding is that uh, 
the children at these schools were also not necessarily allowed to talk to each other, to to their siblings. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I've been doing quite a lot of work on um, uh, the uh, residential school in my community called the Mohawk Institute, which is Canada's first residential school after which all of were modeled. And so speaking with survivors, that in, that uh, residential school closed in 1970. So there are uh, quite a few remaining survivors. And yes, the, the siblings were not allowed to connect. Um, there was no uh, physical touch of an, in a loving way. Um, a lot of our, our um, research with survivors uh, talks about, um, you know, not being able to receive any sort of love. And that was, that was the main, um, the main thing for them that they didn't know how to love. And they came out of the schools and had families of their own and didn't know how to parent and didn't know how to extend love. And, and for a lot of them, it's been a long healing journey and they can continue to still do that healing work today and connecting with other survivors. And then for the news to come out, I myself took part in the uh, 215 moccasins on the step of the Mohawk Institute a couple of days ago. And uh, a lot of the survivors were there. So it's, it's sort of, you know, there's this kinship relationship between all the experiences across the basically Turtle Island, because this stuff happened in the U.S. as well with the Indian boarding schools, that it is felt across the land that, you know, this, this, this grief that Kat is talking about, everybody has holds that in, in a way, and especially because they weren't um, offered uh, a proper burial ceremony and that's a really important aspect of most uh, cultural life for indigenous nations for well for for every group mm-hmm. i mean it's a basic mm-hmm. human thing cat and i mean so th- this is a a large number of children and nobody would have been informed when they passed away cat um yeah and i, I can't speak to the records but the fact that I, I believe, you know, I was looking up some info, and I think there was 50 or 51 recorded deaths. Obviously, that's quite far off the mark, uh, given this recent discovery. And, you know, one of the survivors uh, was quoted as saying, I was there 11 years and never once received a hug. I can't imagine going through childhood with, with never being hugged. And because I work within academic institutions, as, as we all do, um, just that word, when it comes to residential school, being a survivor, you know, nowadays you, you come out of the school system, you're a graduate. Back then, and still, uh, if you managed to make it through, you were considered a survivor. That in itself is, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of naming it as such. The, again, you know, I, there's a lot of thoughts running around in my head. It's almost hard to form them. I can't imagine not being able to, you know, control over contacting your children completely controlled by an Indian agent and or whoever. Um, siblings being separated. Uh, no no formal understanding of what a family structure was at that time. What do you carry forward from your, your childhood? You know, being children is the next generation of people who will have children that are so desired. And all, all that was erased. Dr. Coburn, I gather that uh, the Catholic Church or some of the orders of the Catholic Church that were running schools have blocked the release of records. I mean, do you know, do records exist of, you know, telling us who is in this grave or potentially in other graves? And and can anything be done if they persist in in blocking this information? Well, I mean, it's a little bit of irony is that I work at the University of Ottawa, which was founded by the Oblates, uh, another Catholic order that ran Indian residential schools in this part of the country. And you'd be hard-pressed. You you really, it's, it's almost from their death grip, from their cold, dead hands, would they ever let you um, even understand what was in their archives? And um, even this morning, listening to the conversations on the radio on um, you know, one of your competitors, unfortunately, CBC is the current, had Minister Bennett on there and other individuals commenting on the fact that the church is very extraordinarily reluctant, almost to the point of litigious of blocking any access to their documentation that they maintain. 
the records that they might have. But in some cases, I think the lack of documentation uh, speaks to how they actually didn't want a record in many cases of uh, the vital statistics of the children that they had taken. You may be able to trace some to the federal government because these were federally funded. So there were transfer agreements, contribution agreements where financial and monies were extended to the Catholic orders that were running them, whether it was Jesuit, Oblates, or what have you, that they would get, I guess, a formula funding for the number of students. Oftentimes, they might not even record the name. One of the examples that I was hearing was um, a a grave where where the death was actually recorded was uh, Indian girl number, and I can't remember the number, but it it was spoken on the radio this morning. So it was almost anonymized, they were giving a numerical sort of pseudonym that really wouldn't dignify the recording of their deaths. And you mentioned earlier, and I think Santi commented on it, is that documentation, especially in the modern age, is one of the ways that we sort of uh, verify the loss of people who are otherwise the disappeared. And so this is a phenomenon that I think Canada also has to come to grips with, is something that we normally reserve for very uh, grisly situations of conflict around the world is where there's mass disappearance of peoples, the disappeared. So there's there's children of the disappeared in Chile, uh, mothers of the disappeared down there, and other Latin American Argentina, countries. Argentina, yeah. Exactly. Argentina particularly uh, went through a great deal in the 1980s. Um, so without that, they live in a state of suspended grief, ambiguous loss, where even just the death certificate to confirm whether or not their loved one may even lie uh, where their remains are so that we can give them um, an afterlife in a social relation with ourselves. We extend their lives. Like, you know, in a lot of ways they live beyond the material death of the body and how we commemorate them. I think that was very systematically denied by the church by hiding the bodies and not recording it and not communicating this to the parents and the loved ones and communities and nations that they came from. We have, we have to take a break, but we are going to continue this very important conversation on the other side of the break. And we'll also uh, be taking a call from a caller who says her mother attended one of these schools. We'll have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on Zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have been talking about the national reckoning regarding the discovery of a mass grave of 215 Indigenous children on the grounds of a former residential school in Kamloops. I would like to take a call from Sandra. Hello, Sandra. Hello, Libby. Thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, what I wanted to, to put out there, I know you've got some non-Indigenous people speaking their narrative or the, what they assume what we're going through. No, the, uh, these uh, mm, these are Indigenous people we're talking to. Okay. Um, one of the uh, Indigenous people that you're talking to, I took exception to one of the statements that she did make, saying that we don't know how to love uh, our children now. I take great exception to that. My late I mother, don't think she was generalizing, but... Go ahead, your mother, yes. Yeah, but my late mother did attend a residential school, and she did suffer horrific uh, abuse at the hands of the nuns and the clergy. So that, that's, that's a given. That's a fact. She, in turn, had us, my, myself and my siblings, and she loved us to the best of her ability. Um, so uh, for someone to make that statement in whole, a blanket statement like that, I really take exception to. And there was another part also. Uh, in the beginning of your uh, show, uh, you mentioned, or some of the guests were using soft words like, oh, they were taken. No, they weren't taken. They were stolen. They were ripped from the mother's and parents' arms. They were just totally ripped from their arms. And uh, there was a language barrier that, you know, they spoke uh, Cree, whereas the clergy spoke uh, European English. Okay, Sandra, this is obviously a very emotional issue. Um, I don't think that our panelists meant this as a blanket statement. I think I think it was intended, Santi Smith, as uh, an example of the kind of damage. 
Yes, that's right. Because um, I, through my work, I, I speak to a lot of um, residential school survivors of the Mohawk Institute. And um, so those, those sentiments are coming from them. Um, it's not a blanket statement. Of, and you know what? It's, you're exactly right, Sandra, that some people uh, were able to reverse what their experiences were and to give and parent the best way that they possibly could. And that's a testament to the resilience that we're seeing in yourself and other people and other Indigenous um, families that, hey, the schools didn't actually, they weren't successful. They weren't successful in their mandate and, and people continue to thrive and to um, bring their families back together. So that's one of the things that we like to um, highlight in the work that we do. It's not only intergenerational trauma, it's intergenerational resilience that we actually uh, take the strength and we have to remind ourselves about that resilience that is that is uh, within us and within our nations. Kat Krieger, uh, there is a call to look for other terrible mass graves like this. How does that have to be done in a way that respects traditions? I guess, you know, for, for one thing is, you know, the actual location of these sites and the technology we have available now um, gives, gives us a way to do that. Certainly, you know, one of my first thoughts, actually, when I heard about this, it's it's like finding the location of a mass serial killer. And maybe that's a a descriptor of what was going on, because there were certainly many schools or many children, um, you know, were were put in these unmarked graves. The whole concept was to remove the culture, the language, the spirituality, the philosophy, the pedagogies, um, just way of being, dressing physical appearance, hair, everything possible was removed to assimilate these children. And I think as these places are discovered, then there, there should be Indigenous people there. There should be people uh, from the community, you know, um, as in many uh, sites now, monitoring what is going on and giving direction to how to proceed. It's, and again, I can't speak pan-Indigenous. It's, it's a big country. There's many, many different nations out there that do things different ways, um, but certainly informed um, in every possible step, in every way, involved in every possible step, in every way, and taking the appropriate, as, as seen fit by those people, um, whatever cultural um, ceremony, if you would. You know, myself, one of my first reactions when I heard this was to put some tobacco down out uh, on the ground and light some sage and, and do a smudge and hold a pipe ceremony. These are things for me that initiate beginning to um, even deal with something like that. And it's, you know, when, when we, you know, when a site's discovered where there has been a serial killing, um, there is a massive reaction. Um, anything associated with that is investigated. Any records or details are um, sourced, you know, either through police or whatever means. The idea that the church has blocked this access. So, one of the things is transparency, and most certainly the church should be transparent in every single possible record, note, notation, or anything they have to offer to, to assist in this. Dr. Coburn, uh, first of all, just, were any of the schools operated by other churches? I'm assuming yes. Yes, but the, the Roman Catholic Church operated approximately 60%, and um, we should note, too, that in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, it studied and examined survivors and institutions that were federally run. So it was very narrow in scope, and it, and, and it missed out on a lot of uh, historical schools that had long since closed down. Uh, most of them had closed down, yes, but um, they were run sort of privately, so they get captured into uh, within a smaller ambit of what was studied. And um, so there's 130, about that number, that makes it into the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But uh, the Anglican Church and the United Church, and I think a little bit of Methodist, perhaps, but uh, the, the big three ran the churches with uh, the Roman Catholic Church being the predominant operator. And what do you think they have to do? 
Well, the other two churches have come forward and shown some contrition. The one holdout still is the Roman Catholic Church, where the Pope, uh, you know, despite having done it elsewhere, and as recently as, I guess, in Ireland, where a similar situation unfolded, a little bit of a grander scale in Tuam, Ireland. Most people have maybe heard of it on this side of the ocean, but they had their mothers and child homes where I think about 900 corpses were buried in, in 20 mass plots. And um, there was a commission of investigation, as they called it, that was initiated in 2014 and uh, concluded in January of this year. But there's been apologies. There's an apology in, in Chile uh, not too long ago, 2018, I believe. Uh, but uh, apparently the Pope has to come at the behest of the Confederacy or Council of Canadian Bishops. And they've been reluctant to do so. They've offered words of regret and sorrow. But um, the one holdout that hasn't really accepted their culpability, and perhaps one of the most egregious as well, because they're still going to courts and the St. Anne's Indian Residential School. That was the more one of the more notorious ones with the homemade electric chair where they put children in. Oh, my goodness. Um, and, and records. Uh, because the survivors there were left out of the Indian residential school settlement and um, the documentation. There were convictions in the 90s there with some nuns. Uh, Children were forced, and and, and I apologize to your listeners for the graphic uh, description, but forced to eat their own vomit and and other sort of atrocious, unspeakable things. But the Roman Catholic Church has been requested to just apologize. And I'm not one moved by gestures of that sort, but I know that for some survivors, they just want to hear sorry from the person at the top. And until today and going on, the Roman Catholic Church, who operated the bulk of these schools, still refuses to come in and show the sort of contrition and penance that it would demand of its own followers. Hmm. Um, we are uh, running out of time, uh, 30 seconds each. Santi Smith, what has to happen next? Well, I think that there's a lot of things that can happen. Um, Six Nations uh, just put out a call for support to continue looking for um, missing children at the Mohawk Institute, uh, other indigenous uh, residential schools as well. So I feel like that is going to be an ongoing process that needs to be supported. And to also go back to the curriculum and and make sure that the courses are uh, updated and not just as elective courses, but um, um, really integrated into uh, teaching the next generation of students. Kat Krieger. You know, the... and. I also, you know, support Six Nations and, and anyone near you realizing how far we can broadcast these days um, on these efforts to uncover these things. And that, uh, you know, this is a crime. I, I like to think I grew up in a country where you have to answer for your crimes when they're discovered and someone has to answer for these crimes. And maybe there's a reluctance on the part of the church to apologize and I that's also inconceivable to me. I'll send out a lesson that came from my little boy when he was about five years old. and He was doing something that, you know, whatever little boys do wrong. And I was, hey, stop doing that. And he said, sorry. And in my daddy moment, I went, do you even know what sorry means? He goes, yes, daddy. It means I promise never to do it again. That is what sorry means. And I think if my five-year-old can figure that out, then maybe that lesson should go out to a, a, a lot of responsible people. Thank you so much, Dr. Veldon Coburn, Kat Krieger, and Santi Smith, and I'm sure we will be revisiting this. Um, And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Since the province opened up second doses for people over 80 this week, we have seen a very wide gap in the ease of access among different regions of 
the province and different places where people got their first shots. Now, the best that I've heard about, some GTA hospitals are proactively reaching out to people and moving up their second appointment. My own relative got an email from Humber River Hospital. She had her second dose yesterday, and this happened, and apparently also at Trillium Hospital, even though the health minister said people would have to make their own bookings. At the other end of the spectrum, here's what happened to a listener, Mary in Trenton. This morning, I called the provincial number. I'm over 80, and I understood that as of today, uh, those over 80 were able to book an early second appointment. I got it. It was less than an hour, which wasn't a bad wait. I expected that. Then they went down. They said, at this time, there are no appointments available. Wow. And I'm over 80. Well, there you go, waiting an hour on the provincial phone line and and nothing to show for that. So if you have questions, because we've had all kinds of responses, we have the guy uh, who will be able to answer the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now let's welcome Dr. Dirk Heyer, Ontario's Chief Coroner and Coordinator of the Provincial Outbreak Response. Hello, how are you? Very well. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. So we're seeing this very, very wide divergence in a response depending, I think, on geographic zones. Uh, what is happening with that? Yeah, it's totally recognize and acknowledge the frustration that some people are feeling. Uh, when we're, we're basing our delivery of vaccine on the supply that's available, and in some jurisdictions, the supply wasn't as plentiful as it was in others, and so in areas such as the areas that have hot spots, they had more supply and were able to deliver vaccines to a greater percentage of their populations, whereas others aren't as, uh, haven't moved as quickly because of the supply that they have. So clearly there's a difference across the province. But what we needed to do provincially was balance off and make sure that we continued to deliver the vaccines as they arrived. And so you have a balance between the first and the second doses. And some, some places who haven't uh, had the same coverage of first doses will be at a different stage with their second doses. Hmm. Uh, interesting. Uh, there was, there, we had one caller who actually didn't have to wait that long on the phone, but at the end of, of the appointment got an appointment that was one day earlier than, than the original one in July. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, we, we certainly know that that is going to be the issue based upon um, this is eligibility, as you talked about early and earlier in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the conversation. And so there are some that won't be moved significantly forward in this particular age group because we still have a fair number of first doses to do. And so uh, we, we recognize that there won't necessarily be as quick move or as much of a movement as we continue forward through the next number of months that that interval will shorten um, as uh, as things come to uh, a closer time frame to book and uh, between the time when they uh, receive their dose. So, so absolutely. So that means if, if people over 80 are having to wait, uh, then people who are younger are definitely going to have to wait. No, as we continue to, uh, and they're going to have to wait to, to do their eligibility, but what will happen is, um, because we have increasing and continually increasing supply that's coming over the summer and less first doses that need to occur, more second doses will be able to be done. So right now what's happening is we have both first and second doses happening together with a significant number of first doses still happening. So there's less volume available for the second doses, whereas more volume will be available for second doses as we go through the summer. Okay, so I I want to read another email because I'm wondering if this particular problem uh, is solved or about to be solved now that mixing of the doses is okay. My husband tried to book his second shot of Moderna today. Um, First, he tried to use the provincial site. Um, So he... Uh, first he tried the provincial site, was told that he had to go to Toronto. Then he tried the phone line, and after spending an hour and a half waiting on the phone, they told him Moderna wasn't available in Niagara, 
and he would have to go to Toronto. How do they expect seniors to go to Toronto? Um, uh, she said she's not happy at all, and we have no choice but to wait for our regularly scheduled appointments in July. Now, uh, is there a chance now that uh, he can take the Pfizer, that there's Pfizer available in Niagara? Yeah, I don't have the breakdown of all of the different jurisdictions, but what NACI talked about yesterday, which is the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, is they believe that if there's not, uh, that it's best to have the same um, MR, both, both mRNA vaccines, so Moderna and Moderna, Pfizer and Pfizer, if available, but if not, uh, interchanging those they felt was a safe alternative. Uh, one of the things that we've had is a, a decreased supply of Moderna coming in. Um, hopefully that will change uh, over the next few weeks, and that will make greater availability of Moderna clinics um, uh, around. But, but yes, that's one of the things we're contemplating is providing that ability for booking um, somebody who had Moderna first and then getting Pfizer second. But we have to ensure that we have the, 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 the booking process and the, um, the, the tracking process within the software to allow that because clearly early on, everything was keep the same vaccine. So we set a system in place to make sure that people were getting the same vaccine so there wasn't um, a potential safety issue if they got different ones. So we have to revise that and look at that to see how can we do that most effectively. Okay, so just a minute. Let me just make sure I'm understanding you. Uh, so uh, he should not try to, if he's willing to take a Pfizer shot, he shouldn't try to book it on the provincial site because it may not be ready for mixed doses. Is is that what you're telling me? Correct. Stand by for, for uh, 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 during this week. We should have information out within the next couple of days about this. Okay. Uh, the other question that I have is, so at least in Toronto anyway, the pharmacists, most of them are out of AstraZeneca, but they have Pfizer. Now, are pharmacists authorized to give out Pfizer as a second dose? Not at this time. Again, during we're going to have this all sorted out this week. These are all questions that, that are lively being managed. Um, so I left a meeting where this discussion was happening and I'm and, I'll, uh, and, and we're going to uh, get all of those answers hopefully available to the public or with over the next couple of days. Okay, my phone lines are jammed, so I'm going to take a few uh, calls for you, Dr. Heyer. Um, we'll start with Olive in Niagara, and Olive is 91. Hi, Olive. Oh, hi, uh, Libby. Uh, mine is the same situation as the previous caller. I live in Niagara area. And I went on the telephone and waited for an hour and a half, which didn't matter. Finally got to talk to somebody and I got the same reply, nothing available. Uh, call again at a different time. I've called three times, the same same answer, nothing available. And uh, Dr. Heyer, do you have any idea when there will be more supply in Niagara? I don't, but what I would suggest is we will have more information over the next couple of days, um, certainly this week about uh, the opportunity to have different vaccines provided. So uh, I would say to all of don't call again today. Um, not and that just to, to, because I don't think there'll be a different answer for her today. But we uh, completely are uh, looking to answer that question and have that answer uh, publicly available as soon as possible. Okay, Olive, I, I hope we get that information I for you that. soon. Oh, keep, thank you very much. Keep listening. Let's go to Madeline in Peterborough. And Madeline, you are a first-time caller. Hello. Hi, Libby. Go ahead. Hello? Hi, Libby. Yes, go ahead. You're yes. on the air. Sorry about that. Yes, I've gone online four times. I'm going to be 83 tomorrow. I've had the five Happy birthday in March. And I've gone online four times to book an appointment for uh, the early vaccine. And the closest uh, location for me is Discover Town Center. Um, yeah, and presumably it's hard for you to get there. Definitely. I mean, I'm 83 years old, you know. Um, I, I just don't understand. And, uh, you know, I have to admit, though, the Ontario Health has just been fantastic the way they've handled this. My first shot, I was so impressed with uh, the way it was handled. Thought it was going to be... But now, as I said, I can't go to the Scarborough Town Center. 
Um, Dr. Heyer, I mean, I, I think that I know there are some agencies that are helping people get to their appointments. Are, are, do you have any knowledge of that? I don't have the specific agencies, but what I can say first off, uh, you're still 82 today, Madeline, so happy birthday tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> Thank but the you. Second, the second thing is, I think Madeline's call illustrates what I was talking about earlier, Libby, which is in uh, in Toronto, they were, uh, there was extra allocation provided for the hotspots, and so they now have availability to provide to their 80-year-olds, whereas Peterborough, because they didn't have the significant hotspots that Toronto did, are still doing uh, further work with first doses and don't have as many second doses available. So uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's frankly, it's an unfortunate thing that we don't have uh, complete alignment across the province and, and certainly recognize Madeline's uh, frustration and, and desire to get her second dose uh, by her 83rd birthday. And, and I wish I had a better answer, but, but it really is speaking to the balance of the first doses and the second doses based upon availability. I see. Okay. okay. So I might just as well wait until July? No, no, no. No. You're going to have to wait as long as July. I don't think you're going to have to be waiting until July. Madeline, so? Madeline no. keep, keep, keep listening, and uh, uh, we will definitely stay on this. Uh, uh, and um, which, which shot did you get for your first one? Pfizer. Pfizer. So that's the one that's most plentiful. Plentiful. Uh, and uh, happy birthday again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Libby. You have a wonderful show. Thanks so really, much. Really enjoy listening to you every day. Thank you. You take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, Evie in Toronto. Uh, Evie, are you having a better experience in Toronto? Evie. Hello. Okay, that's gone. Um, we'll take Elsie in Ennismore. Hello, Elsie. Hello, Libby. You're on the air. Go ahead. On Monday, I got on uh, online at about 8 o'clock and uh, tried to book an appointment for my husband, who is 88. And the first thing they came up with Lindsay. And I looked at it and I said, oh, well, where's the Peterborough site? So I backed up one um, screen and put Peterborough in again. And when it came up, it, Peter, Lindsay was not there. The next closest was um, Markham, Scarborough, or Aurelia. So I clued in that these are the only available appointments that there are. And we managed to book into Markham today at three o'clock. So Good for you. Busy. How are you and getting there? Uh, well, we're driving, and it's about an hour and 15 minutes. But I said to my husband, what do the people do that can't get in their car and drive an hour and a half to get their second shot? Uh, well, I think they're still waiting, and we're going to try to see if there is anything for them. Elsie, thanks for that, and, and uh, good luck and congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and drive careful. Drive careful. Okay, I'm going to take one more uh, call right now because it looks like it's it's going to be like a good good news. Hi, Richard in Hamilton. Hello, Libby. Hello. Go ahead, Richard. You got your shot, right? Uh, last night at eight o'clock, my wife went on the computer. Half an hour later, I got it moved from July 13 up to June 9 in Hamilton. Perfect. That's fantastic news. And uh, it's with the with the same uh, same one I had the first time at uh, Hamilton Place, the Ontario Place. Okay, then, Richard. Thanks for for sharing that. Good luck. Thank you. Okay, Doctor Heyer. Um, just before we let you go to to recap a, a lot of the questions I had, there are not answers to them yet, but there will be soon. Correct? Yes, and uh, you know that I come back when you invite. Absolutely, absolutely. We will uh, want to talk to you again soon, and uh, we look forward to getting the answers to those questions. Uh, we really appreciate your time, and and thank you for taking those calls. Well, thank you for asking the questions. They're very helpful for all of us. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Right. 
And we are still with the pandemic for this next segment. And I'd like to get some more information about the mixing of the doses, which was allowed by NASA yesterday. It's been allowed in Quebec for a while and in other countries. Also, I, I just read a disturbing report warning that an even more dangerous variant of COVID may be in the offing. And if that wasn't enough, we've just seen the report out of China of the first human case of a rare form of bird flu called H10N3. China's National Health Commission says the risk of large-scale transmission is low. Where have we heard that before? So for some clarity on all of this, I'd like to welcome Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network, and Dr. Timothy Sly, an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Hello and welcome. Hello, Libby. Hello. Uh, so uh, first of all, uh, let's begin with Dr. Hota. And we've just been hearing uh, frustration of people over 80 who are not in hotspots, who are having trouble getting their second doses. Uh, one of the things I'm wondering about, you know, we heard that if people mix the doses, the short-term side effects will be or can be more severe. Is is that more true for older people over 80, Dr. Hota? Well, certainly. So the, the, the limited information we have to date about, um, about these kinds of side effects and what happens when you do interchange different types of vaccines do suggest that all the side effects that are commonly seen are seen that much more commonly when you do the mixing compared to if you got the same vaccine twice for each dose or uh, once for each dose. Um, so I expect that that's going to be what we'll see if people move forward with it. But that said, there aren't increased safety, safety signals. So um, there weren't hospitalizations or serious adverse events in three studies that actually looked at the safety and side effect profile of those that had the mixing and matching. So uh, that would occur across the board with different age groups. Um, in these studies, they tended to be younger people that were recruited. So the median ages were in the 30s or 40s. Um, but I do think that across the board, probably there will be more side effects if, if people started with AstraZeneca and went ahead and got Pfizer and Moderna as a second dose. Okay, yeah, you just answered my next question, which uh, was, uh, were older people in those uh, studies? Uh, uh, Dr. Sly, do you have uh, any thoughts on this? No, the uh, Dr. Elders hit it right on the head. That's exactly what I would have said, actually. Yeah, because uh, there is difficulty. I mean, the rollout is happening at different speeds across the province. Uh, it makes sense that there's more supply in the hotspots. Uh, and uh, what is the situation at UHN, Dr. Hota? We know that Humber River and Trillium have actually contacted people who are due their second dose. What's the situation at UHN? Because they were uh, pretty well on top of things. Yes, and we have registries for, for patients for various groups, community healthcare workers, our own healthcare workers. So, you know, the vaccine clinics that we run at UHN um, have multiple different groups that have been a part of the vaccine strategy that we've, we've offered to. We also have mobile teams that have been very active going into hotspots and into areas where people have less mobility and uh, may not be able to get out to the large uh, um, uh, vaccine clinics. So all that work is underway. Um, and I think as you heard earlier, there are two parts to it, right? There's the science of whether or not we want to recommend this uh, mix and match strategy or how we want to proceed with, you know, altering our vaccine strategy. And then there's the logistics and the accessibility. And, and uh, you know, there's always going to be some bumps in the road, but I think everyone's working as quickly as they can to uh, to resolve those issues and make sure we get second doses out to people as quickly as possible. Have your mobile teams started to administer the second doses? I believe some second doses have been given, definitely within the long-term care sector early on. We did first and second doses as required, um, and second doses have happened uh, in select groups, of, uh, special populations, people who are, you know, transplant patients, for example, things like that. Um, so it's ongoing work, and as you can imagine, scheduling all that and trying to keep on top of the, the challenges that people are, are telling us they're experiencing at times, it, it's uh, a huge amount of work, but I think it's very fulfilling and people are excited to be doing it. Yeah, Dr. Sly, I mean, there's there's a feeling out there that, that 
older people who are in the community and who have the least draw on the healthcare system, you know, that they have been to some extent uh, forgotten. Well, they, it, it, when the thing started, if you remember, you know, a year and, uh, what, a year and a quarter ago almost, uh, they were the focus of, uh, of all of the concern. That was where the infections were taking place. That was where the deaths were increasing. Uh, and they've, they've, yes, they've, uh, from, from the point of view of, uh, of, uh, of incidents, they have, uh, we, we, the focus has moved from them to vastly younger ages now. But in terms of the vaccines, I'm one of those older people as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that, uh, that, that we follow through with those uh, second doses as well. That, that's an important issue, especially with the new variant coming along, the, uh, the 617. It seems that the one dose is really not enough to, uh, to, to be confident. Uh, the 617 is, is the one that originated in India, correct? That's correct. So there's uh, three versions of it, but it's the uh, B one six one seven two. That's the one that uh, we're worried about. Okay, yeah, that's what I want to get to. That uh, I read this disturbing report that um, I don't entirely understand. Uh, that there is a new variant, and I think it's this one which can be worse and and is more transmissible. Uh, Doctor Hoda, what can you tell me about that? Yes, yeah, so that report uh, that you're referring to, I believe, is, is referring to the B1617.2. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, discussion about how uh, it's really been the dominant, one of the dominant uh, lineages that and sublineages of uh, the virus that has been circulating in India. And we all know just how dramatic, um, you know, the effects have been in that country. But it's also been introduced into the UK and it's all, it's taking over um, I guess, uh, past other variants. So it's starting to replace the previous uh, predominant variant, which was the B117, uh, and become more, uh, you know, it's, it's being found more, more often. And it, there's some suggestion that it's more transmissible than even B117, which, as you may recall, was more transmissible than the earlier variants that started off the pandemic. So the, the implication there is it spreads more easily but the other piece of information that's really interesting is um, there is one uh, not yet peer-reviewed study, so it's still being reviewed, um, but it's been submitted and it's available that shows that in the UK, it looks like one dose of a vaccine, whether it be Pfizer or AstraZeneca, which are the two that were involved, provide less protection when it comes to this particular variant. Only about 30 to 35% of people will actually have an effective immune response after one dose. And that is dramatically increased after the second dose. So I think it just shows how important it is for us to get those second doses out really quickly. Yeah, uh, it's pretty scary. According to what I read, it's 50% more transmissible. And uh, I, I sort of don't don't quite get the rationale behind it. And it said that because there's been a decline in the known variants of concern causing, you know, the most recent cases, they're figuring that it might be another one. Yeah, I, I can explain a little bit of that. So when we test for variants of concern, we have a screening test that really only targets a few of the known variants of concern, and it won't detect this variant. So when you get a, a positive result back for a variant of concern, it could, it could indicate, you know, B117 or B1351 or the P1 variants, what we've heard the most about so far, but the B1617.2 will not be identified. So when you start seeing the positive cases of variants of concerns shrink and those that are testing negative for variants of concern grow, there is an automatic concern, could the B1617.2 be, be behind that and what's driving that change? Hmm. Interesting. Now, what about this case of bird flu, Dr. Sly? Ah, yes, the avian flu. Well, there's, uh, there are 18 of the H's and there are 10 of the N's, and you put them together and you've got a vast number of these A uh, viruses. Uh, the, the A stands for avian, but I mean, they, they do affect uh, pigs and humans and dogs and ferrets and other things as well. From time to time, we get uh, a notification of a new um, H and A combination, uh, and some of them are 
shall we say, uh, very concerning. Should they learn to move uh, in a sustained form in the human population? Just to give you an idea, the current pandemic that we're in, we have a, an infection fatality rate, in other words, a risk of dying if you are a case of somewhere around 0.7 to 1%, somewhere in that is pretty stable. But there are, there are viruses right now on the other side of the world that have a, a case fatality rate of, um, in the case of H7N9, of about uh, 33% and H5N1 of about 50% or even higher. So this is why we, we're very worried about these. So far, they, there's only one human case. But that they're telling us about. <laughs> yeah, but, but genetically, it, it, it has some characteristics that uh, make it potentially able to move across species, possibly into human species, uh, much more easily than many of the other A-viruses. Dr. Hota, are you, uh, are, are you comforted or uh, uh, when you hear the Chinese health authorities say the risk of transmission is low? You know, we've actually been seeing these kinds of events where there be a, a sporadic case of a different type of influenza, whether it be avian or from some other animal origin, spilling over into a human, you know, infection uh, periodically for for many years. So I, I keep an eye on it. I actually don't get too worried right away uh, until you start seeing, you know, clusters of activity or transmission between people. I mean, that would be very concerning. But I, these kinds of events are to be expected, and they're just a reminder to me that we need to continue doing this surveillance, not just within human populations, but also within animal, animal populations where, you know, the majority of our emerging infectious diseases arise from. Okay, it's time to wrap this segment up. First, Dr. Sly, what would you like to leave us with? Oh, never underestimate Mother Nature. She's always got some tricks up her sleeve, and just when we begin to think we can relax, Look what's happening in Britain. Uh, in the, I'm looking at right now, Bolton, Blackburn, and Bedford, three cities, and about a week and a half ago, their numbers began to rise again instead of relaxing, and it's almost certainly due to the 617 circulating, and among very younger people, 20-year-olds. Dr. Hota? Don't give up. Keep trying to vac- get your vaccination, second-dose vaccination booked. Um, you know, don't feel as though because one dose is, is in you that you're okay to go ahead and uh, you know, you still have to follow the public health restrictions. And please do follow up and get that second dose. It really is important. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Timothy Sly and Dr. Susie Hota. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Okay. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, there is a national re- reckoning underway uh, over the mass grave found in Kamloops on the grounds of a former residential school. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.